It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. <laughs> Hello. I am still getting annoyed when I go on Facebook to post things like on the Media Buzz page. Uh, you get these messages today is record a video or go live to answer common customers' questions. And everything is like share an anecdote about your industry. It's We're not all making widgets here. I don't have customers. I have viewers and readers. All it needs to say is, what's up? Or what's new? Or what's on your mind? Or something like that. Just obviously came out of the marketing department. Uh, I was seriously annoyed over the weekend. I hope you had a good weekend, by the way. And I hope you had a chance to catch Media Buzz when I went in to do the show yesterday. Uh, because I work in the Washington Bureau, I had to put on a mask. I mean, obviously, we were all wearing masks a few months ago. Then came a time when uh, all those restrictions were lifted. But the mayor of D.C., Muriel Bowser, responding to that CDC guidance, and I'll have a lot more to say about that in mere moments, um, and completely unnecessarily, in my view, um, has reimposed a mask mandate. Now, so when I walk in the building, because the, the building is not just Fox, it's, uh, you know, state governments and local businesses and so forth. Uh, and so now we're back to wearing the mask, except, you know, you take it off when you're on camera in the studio. Uh, the Although the cases are rising, the number of hospitalizations and deaths has been absolutely minuscule in the District of Columbia. And Mayor Bowser has now joined the pantheon of democratic hypocrites because she imposes this thing and it takes effect in a couple of days. And then the next night, I think just on the verge of it taking effect, uh, she goes out and she's photographed at a couple of big celebrations. One was a wedding celebration, I think. And no one's wearing a mask. She's not wearing a mask. So it's like, you know, do what I say, not what I do. Uh, and how is anybody supposed to have the confidence that they need to follow these rules when the mayor who just imposed them, thinks it's fine for her to do whatever the hell she wants. Um, I am still laughing, though, about, you know, I've recently discovered this new New York Times feature where they have this team that kind of rates products. Uh, and just there's something about the contrast between the, the, the serious tone of the gray lady and the, the latest one I like was ice cream sandwiches. Where can you get the best ones? And it's, you know, they look, it's like 77 ice cream sandwiches. They like Klondike bars, but spoiler alert, they don't like Klondike ice cream sandwiches. Uh, it's just, I mean, I'm sure it's a great public service, but depending on what it is, it makes me laugh. Barack Obama is going to be celebrating his 60th birthday party in a few days with 475 of his closest friends up in Martha's Vineyard, where he uh, purchased a $12 million house. Oprah will be there. George Clooney will be there. Uh, Steven Spielberg. And my first thought was, yeah, he's a former president. Let him celebrate. Who cares? My second thought was uh, COVID. But it turns out in reading into this, maybe they're having it outside, where obviously it's less of a problem. But still, you know, almost 500 people. The former president of the United States is hiring a COVID coordinator. Uh, to help him plan the party. And that reminds me, just thought of this now, of an item I saw the other day. Meghan Markle, I know a lot of you are fans of the Duchess. Can we still use that title? And a lot of you are not fans of the Duchess. Uh, she decided she wanted to have a, a, a small, low-key affair to celebrate her birthday. And so she got in touch with Oprah's party planner. Now, Oprah's party planner clearly is the person you would go to if you just wanted a quiet, low-key affair, right? <laughs> That's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. Hey, I got this onto the show yesterday. Uh, well, first of all, 
a bit of breaking news. Simone Biles, and we have done, we talked, we spent a lot of time on Media Buzz yesterday talking about Simone Biles, her pulling out of the Olympics, all these glowing articles that were written about her, how courageous she is, how brave she is for mental health reasons. And I asked Jim Gray, the veteran sportscaster, uh, look, I don't think she should be pilloried for doing this. It's her decision. Um, but isn't it true, Jim Gray, that if a male athlete had pulled out in this fashion, he'd just be called a choker? And and Jim kind of deflected that. And he said, look, gymnastics is dangerous. You're spinning up there and doing these flips. Uh, and if you're not in the right mental space, what if you land on your head? You could have serious injury or even kill yourself. And therefore, all these people who are dumping on her need to respect that. And I thought that was, you know, the kind of the perspective of a guy who's been around sports for decades. And it made me rethink it. Uh, again, I don't think we ought to give her a gold medal for bravery. And what the breaking news is she's going to do the last event. I, I don't understand how she makes this decision. She's not right. She's not right mentally. She asked for people's understanding and she skipped all these different competitions. But now, tomorrow, she will participate in the balance beam final along with her teammate, Sunisa Lee, who won a gold medal at the Tokyo Olympics. So, I mean, I guess that's a great thing, and certainly would be a storybook ending if she comes back from this and does really well, uh, but we shall see. And one other Olympic note, the women's, the U.S. women's soccer team losing one to nothing to Canada. And there's a bunch of people on the right, and we talked about this as well, uh, who are just cheering and so happy that Megan Rapino and so forth um, lost the semifinal. And I just think, look, I understand, you know, they're social justice warriors. Megan Rapinoe's had a lot of nasty things to say about Donald Trump, the kneeling and so forth. Um, but really rooting against American athletes, uh, I don't know. It just bothers me. At the same time, I think some of them could exercise a little more restraint because it's one thing to do it in an NFL game or an NBA game. But when you're representing the United States of America, I don't know that that's the best moment to start demonstrating. Uh, and one more sports note before we get down to business here. New York Times sports reporter Karen Krause, she's been in the paper for 16 years. She has now resigned after being suspended. There was an ethics investigation because Karen Krause was assigned to do um, a profile of the great former Olympic champion Michael Phelps, the great swimmer. And this was, when I say glowing profile... I'm not exaggerating. It had lines like, uh, he dispenses advice the way the Pope sprinkles holy water. It was an extremely favorable piece. But it turns out she didn't tell her bosses that she had already signed a deal to co-author a book with Michael Phelps. And so the Times did an investigation. As a result of that investigation, she's resigned. She said, oh, you know, I had a great time here for 16 years. Um... How is that not a conflict? How do you not at least protect yourself? I mean, the Times reportedly found out about this because it was in Sports Illustrated by saying, hey, I, I appreciate this assignment. You might want to know that Michael Phelps and I are going into business together. And if our book is successful, I will make a lot of money off his name. And if you still want me to do the piece, great. But how do you not tell your bosses that? I just simply don't understand it. Uh, Rudy Giuliani, uh, according to Maggie Haberman of the New York Times, is close to broke. He's got a lot of legal fees obviously, uh, not getting much help from Donald Trump. And in an interview with the NBC station in New York on Friday, 
he called the investigation, of which he's clearly, he may not officially be a target, but obviously he's in the crosshairs. He said, it's a lawless investigation. He said he did everything on behalf of his client, Donald Trump. Quote, I am more than willing to go to jail if they want to put me in jail. And if they do, they're going to suffer the consequences in heaven. Doesn't that sound like a former U.S. attorney and former New York City mayor who is kind of resigned to the possibility that he might end up behind bars? I'm not saying he will. No charges have been brought. He's entitled to the presumption of innocence. But the tone of that interview really struck me. Okay, number one. I've been talking about the surging uh, coronavirus cases. Over the weekend, it hit 78,000 new daily cases. Uh, if you've been following me on this, you know that in early June, it was about 15,000, then it was 30, then it was 50, and people are saying, well, yeah, it's nothing like the peak of the pandemic, but now we're getting into serious numbers here. Now, of course, many fewer people are being hospitalized, many fewer people are dying, and that's a good thing. Uh, so what are some of the strategies now to boost vaccination? Uh, a couple of pieces in the New York Times. This one leaves off with Ellie Zeiler. 17-year-old TikTok creator with over 10 million followers. The fact that you and I haven't heard of her doesn't mean anything because it's probably not aimed at our demographic. Uh, she got an email in June uh, from a company reaching out on behalf of the White House. She's a high school senior. She usually posts about fashion and lifestyle. Would she be willing to join a White House campaign to encourage her audience to get the COVID vaccine? She said, sure, I would love to do that. And it turns out about 58% of those aged 12 to 17 having gotten shots. Well, for one thing, they weren't eligible until much, much later in the game. So the White House has put together a kind of a bunch of allies, Twitch streamers, YouTubers, TikTokers, uh, Olivia Rodrigo, the singer. Um, and the whole idea is, you know, they're influencers. And that's a very popular word these days. Here's a Stanford researcher quote is saying, there's an asymmetric passion out there. People who believe it's going to hurt you are out there talking about it every day. They're driving hashtags and pushing content and doing everything they can do. But Christina Najar, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, she's the TikTok star known as Tinks. She says, I don't worry about the backlash. Helping spread the word about the importance of getting vaccinated was the right thing to do. You know, I think this is great. I think all these campaigns are great. Giving out free beer and free lottery tickets and free donuts and everything, it's all great. But let's face it, it hasn't worked that well. It just hasn't worked that well. And part of the reason that it hasn't worked that well is the incredibly confused messaging that's coming particularly from the CDC. Uh, the worst communications I've seen from any federal agency in a very very long time. On Friday, for example, Rochelle Walensky, the head of the CDC, um, you know, is trying to basically do damage control because, you know, as you know, her agency, you know, abruptly decided um, to say that even vaccinated people should wear masks uh, outdoors or if there are other people around or in indoor spaces. So she goes on special report and she talks to Brett Baer. And she says, and he asks her, you know, President Biden said at least, uh, you know, there might be some possibility of a national federal mandate for people to get vaccinated. And she says, yes, that's one of the things we're looking at. That was the quote. We're looking at a national vaccine mandate. Less than an hour later, she's walking it back on Twitter. Well, I, I wasn't really suggesting that. I was just saying private businesses might want to look into this and blah, blah, blah. You know, get it straight. 
How many different versions of this are you going to tell? No wonder people are confused. I do this for a living. I read this stuff every day. I'm confused about what's allowed and what's not allowed. And the whole thing is you don't have to do this everywhere. For example, Martha's Vineyard where Obama's having the party. That's not a hotspot. But where are the hotspots? You look at this map and you say, well, the numbers are up, but are they up enough to be considered a high transmission area? But the good news is there has been an uptick. Uh, CDC says that yesterday nearly 800,000 people got the vaccine. That's the highest single-day total in weeks. It's risen by about 16% over the past week to an average of about 615,000. I think that's before the latest numbers. So there's been some increase. So why is that? I think it's because more people are dying. The media are more focused on that. It's certainly not because... Um, pundits are going on TV calling the unvaccinated idiots and morons and selfish SOBs. I talked about this on the show as well. But, you know, it's impossible to escape the coverage. And I think even those, not so much those who are not getting it for, quote, political reasons, but those who are saying, you know, I'm considering it. I don't know. I don't like the side effects. I want to wait and see. It's only got an emergency approval. They're seeing people go in the hospital that they know. They're seeing members and members of their family or neighbors get seriously sick and die, including like this radio talk show host in Nashville who's now on a ventilator and his brother came out and says he regrets being against taking the vaccine. So I think the stark reality of people getting really sick and some of them tragically dying is starting to penetrate the skulls. And that is more important than all the influencers in the world on TikTok. Fear is a great motivator for some reason. Like New York Times had a good piece yesterday, interviewed all these people. And, you know, a younger guy said, well, you know, I think my immunity can handle it if I got it. I don't expect to get it and so forth. But now with the Delta variant surging, with the number of cases going up and with, you know, virtually, what is it, over 96%, 98% of those who are getting seriously ill are the ones who are dying, I think that sends a powerful message. All right, story number two is this accompanying piece in the Times which talks about the spreading of misinformation. So there's a local news site in Phoenix called the Freedom's Phoenix. There's the Atlanta Business Journal, respected publication. And they both ran pieces, this is back in March, about the dangers of coronavirus vaccines. They were written by Joseph Mercola, who researchers have said is a, a top spreader of misleading COVID-19 information or misinformation. Uh, in this piece that was run by these local outlets, he inaccurately likened the vaccines to gene therapy and said they're not useful. Uh, then a month later, they published, these two publications ran another piece by Mercola. He blamed Bill Gates for the pandemic, saying that Gates has shadow control over the WHO. I mean, this is, you know, Looney Tunes stuff. It's conspiracy theories. So there's been a lot of attention on Facebook and so forth, but... These publications, these smaller publications, you know, which tend to be trusted by local audiences, because they're local, same thing with local TV, they have become vehicles, some of them, as well for this kind of stuff, according to this piece in the New York Times. Uh, there's a vaccine skeptic named Sherry Tenpenny. Uh, she was recently on the Coach Dave Live podcast in Ohio, making the misleading, misleading and utterly false claim that vaccines hurt people's fertility. Uh, a similar person was making similar claims on WSMV, News 4 in Nashville. It's an NBC affiliate in Tennessee. 
And uh, the Times called up all these places, Atlanta Business Journal, the, the National Station, no comment, no comment, no comment. Dr. Mercola's comment was, local communities must come together when the federal health agencies and mainstream media are under the influence of the pharmaceutical industry. And now there's more stories, and you see this on TV, and, and it's just, I mean, they're heartbreaking stories about people who wind up on their deathbeds because they ridiculed or just turned up their noses at the vaccine. Here's one I just happened to click on. A Nevada woman is sharing her family's heartbreak after her fiancé expressed regret about not getting the COVID-19 shot shortly before dying from the disease. He was only 39. Our babies now don't have a dad, Jessica Dupree's told uh, Las Vegas station KVVU. You can't say I'm young and it won't affect me because it will. Stories like that are just, just make you want to cringe. Like, Why wasn't the message getting out? So these are avoidable deaths. These people do not have to die. They do not have to go to the hospital. They just got to go to the local drugstore and get a shot. Uh, and unfortunately, perhaps their stories are now inadvertently serving as a, a message, as a warning to people who are still healthy, that this would be the time to go get the shots. Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. All right, number three. Um, the Democrats are up in arms, and some of the media are up in arms against Kevin McCarthy. Uh, this is, you know, just complete and total outrage. And I'm not going to defend it, but it's a question of proportion. So here's a story in the Washington Post. Several Democrats are calling on House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy to apologize or resign after he made this joke about Nancy Pelosi. So he's at this Tennessee Republican dinner and, you know, you're playing to the crowd. And he says, um, you're all invited to my swearing in if Republicans take over the House majority next year, which is a very good possibility, if only because it's the first midterm and they only need five seats. And I've talked about that before. And just with gerrymandering alone, the odds are the Republicans will win. But, you know, a lot could happen between now and then. So McCarthy's talking to the crowd and he says, I want you to watch Nancy Pelosi hand me that gavel. It will be hard not to hit her with it. Now, that's a stupid thing to say. It's a dumb joke. He shouldn't have said it. Uh, Democrats immediately denounced McCarthy's remarks as misogynistic, disgraceful, no laughing matter. Uh, here is a comment from uh, Pelosi's deputy chief of staff, a tweet from Drew Hamill. A threat of violence to someone who was a target of a January 6th assassination attempt from your fellow Trump supporters is irresponsible and disgusting. And... I just want to say it was a really, really bad and tasteless joke, but it was a joke. It was not a threat of violence. Kevin McCarthy is not secretly thinking of taking that gavel and hitting Nancy Pelosi over the head. Now, contrast that with last week when Nancy Pelosi is on videotape getting into a car and saying that her Republican counterpart, McCarthy, is a moron. And that was had to do with sniping about why there are there House Republicans balking at wearing masks because she's reimposed the rule and they don't want to and they protest and so forth. So, you know, if McCarthy had called Pelosi a moron, we'd have all this, oh, this is unfair to the learning disabled and so forth. And she basically skated. People reported as, ah, that's funny. And then he came back and said, well, you know, where's the science in this because the hill is not a hot spot and so forth and so on. 
So again, I'm not defending Kevin McCarthy's choice of words, but the idea that he is a misogynist threatening violence is, you know what it is. When somebody on your side makes a bad, tasteless, or even really cringeworthy joke, you, you, you excuse it. You say it's just a joke. When somebody on the other side does it, you say this is a threat to American society itself. Meanwhile, as long as we're on the subject of Capitol Hill, uh, yesterday, Senate Dems and GOPers uh, actually came out with a bill for this $1 trillion infrastructure deal, roads, bridges, pipes, ports, internet connections. There, there was no bill. I mean, they had to actually write the text. And now, you know, there's stories in the papers today saying $66 billion for transit. It's going to be a great windfall for Amtrak. Also, how much goes to highways, how much goes uh, to waterways. Uh, broadband, and all of that. Uh, Democrats and Republicans, uh, says the Washington Post, say they have covered the full cost of their new spending. Uh, can I just stop there? That's complete and total bull. They haven't covered any of the cost. So the reason this may now pass, and I've been telling you again and again and again, it's not going to pass, it's going to fall apart. And still, there's a question about whether the liberals in the, on the Dem side, whether AOC will torpedo it, because if, she can, if five House liberals vote against it, it doesn't become law. In other words, they had to come up with something that was moderate enough, $500 billion in new spending, to get you know Rob Portman and Mitch McConnell and Republicans on board, but, and as well as Kristen Sinema and Joe Manchin. And then the hope is it's not so much of a compromise that the liberals in the House will walk away. But, he, but here's the deal. The only reason this is going to pass, if it does pass, is because it inflicts no pain. It's not paid for. It's basically they're just going to borrow all the money. So sure, everybody likes that, free money, right? And it's going to drive up the deficit. So originally, President Biden was doing the responsible thing, you know? He was going to raise taxes on people making more than 400000 which he said in the campaign. He was going to raise the corporate tax rate, not as high as it was before Trump, but higher than it is now. He said that in the campaign as well. Republicans said, no way, not happening, we're not signing out to this. Okay, says Biden, we'll just give a lot more money to the IRS and they will crack down on tax cheats, which also is a kind of a wishful thinking that was too much for the Republicans as well. They don't want uh, people they represent to have to go through more tax audits. So now they've got all these just, you know, accounting gimmicks. We're going to uh, collect unpaid taxes on cryptocurrencies. It's just a I, I love the way the Wash Post story puts it. Both, um, no, nonetheless, there remains concern in both parties that some of the math is fuzzy. <laughs> it's not fuzzy. It's fictional. Of course, it's going to add to the federal deficit, and we're already, you know, way, way, way uh, under red ink. All right, let me get to number uh, five. Ross Douthat, uh, conservative columnist, writing in the New York Times about a week of setbacks for Donald Trump. Uh, one, one of his endorsed candidates lost a special election in Texas. I never make too much of special elections. Uh, at the same time, Trump came out against what I was just talking about, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, but almost nobody says Douthat seemed to care. There was no sense that Republican senators are fearing his wrath. So he makes a, a great point, I think. It's an important distinction. As, a, as the leader of the party, and that's what Donald Trump is, he has a lot of clout in the sense that you don't want to piss off his voters, you don't want him campaigning against you, you don't, you don't want him endorsing a primary opponent against you. But that doesn't necessarily translate into power or clout or influence on policy. In fact, even when he was president, uh, Donald Trump was often bucked by the Republican Party. The rule in the Trump era is that you can oppose Trump indirectly 
or win without his endorsement, but except for a few unusual cases, you can't challenge him personally and expect to have Republican voters on your side. But here's Douthat's bottom line. Two things can be true at once. Trump has a certain kind of political genius and a strong personal bond with the Republican base, and Trump's influence ebbs the further you get from the world of rhetoric and personal identification. So he can change party priorities on entitlement infrastructure, but he couldn't actually get a health care bill through. He couldn't actually get an infrastructure bill through. Um, and that brings me to the related matter of uh, reporting, first by the Washington Post, and this clearly is being leaked from the, the House's new January 6th committee, about what Donald Trump did at the end of his term with the acting attorney general. And so I want to go back now and read from the Washington Post story, which is the first to break this. Donald Trump pressed senior Justice Department officials at the end of 2020 to just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and our lawmakers. And that comes from the handwritten notes of a top Justice Department official, um, guy's name is Richard Donahue, and it was released to Congress this week, finally made public on Friday after the leak. Um, now, Trump was calling almost every day acting Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen to try to get him to chin up investigations and so forth about um, all those states where Trump was contesting the elections. Um, now, Rosen, when he testified, said, look, I didn't do any of those things. I didn't appoint a special prosecutor. Uh, I didn't make any public statements questioning the election. I didn't send any letters to state officials. So the bottom line is none of this happened. In other words, the, the wall held. Donald Trump was not able to pressure even an acting attorney general at his Justice Department, just as he was not able to pressure Bill Barr, who resigned in mid-December, to back up his unproven claims of fraud. But now we know this is not just a new book coming out. This is not just anonymous sources. These are notes from a DOJ official at the time. Just say the election was corrupt. Leave the rest to me. Now, there's a counter-argument here that he was only talking about the specifics of whether there were more ballots than votes cast in Pennsylvania. Turns out that wasn't even true. But it doesn't matter. Listen to those words. Just say the election was corrupt and leave the rest to me and our congressman. Um, you know, I, I've been grappling with the question of how much, um, you know, are we all going to spend the next four years just digging into every single thing that Donald Trump did? But when it comes to the election results, I do think journalists have a responsibility. And look, of course, it's in the Democrats' interest to keep um, pounding away at this because Donald Trump is going to be a force in the midterms because Donald Trump may well run in 2024. And there were things that we didn't know then. We might have suspected. We might have had pieces of the puzzle. I don't say this. It's not an anti-Trump comment. It's not a pro-Trump comment. A lot of stuff was going on behind the scenes that we didn't know about. And finally, for those who say, you know, let's move on. Let's move on from January 6th. Let's move on from the, quote, rigged election. You know who's not moving on? Donald J. Trump. I mean, virtually every day I get something in my inbox, and sometimes it's endorsements or other issues, once in a blue moon, it's about vaccines. I'd like to see a lot more from the former president on that, but I get stuff like other reporters in my inbox that says, you know, rigged election, unproven, mainstream media won't cover this, and on and on and on. And so that puts Republican members of Congress or candidates in kind of a bind that goes to Ross Douthat's point, which is you don't want to tick off the former president. In fact, you'd like his support when you're primary, and maybe that helps you in the general. 
And at the same time, you don't want to spend the next year and a half talking about looking backwards in the rearview mirror about an election that, whether you agree or not, whether you like it or not, there is no evidence of widespread fraud. And Joe Biden is the president of the United States. So it's a difficult balancing act as to how much attention to give that. When, uh, you know, every time somebody writes, hey, he cursed somebody out, that's not necessarily a 10 on the media scale. But when there's hard evidence, testimony from somebody had a conversation with the former president, handwritten notes from a Justice Department official, well, of course, that has to be reported and taken very seriously. Uh, you know, it just seems to me that we're at this inflection point now with so many things. We're at an inflection point on the vaccines. If we can get those numbers up, maybe we can, can get the Delta variant numbers down. And it's so frustrating because had more of the vaccine-hesitant people heeded the messages, not just from President Biden or Anthony Fauci, but from Mitch McConnell, who's stepped up and has talked quite a bit about it and gotten some rare mainstream media praise. He's making these radio spots in Kentucky. And um, Steve Scalise just got it, and, and other leaders. And the Republican governor of Alabama, Kay Ivey, telling the unvaccinated, you got to get these shots, it's your fault. If that had been done earlier, if more people had been convinced, then the pandemic would not be where it is right now. Yes, it's not anywhere near as bad as it used to be, but who knows? I mean, there's now questions about school openings or all these kids are going to have to wear masks six, seven hours a day. You know, we haven't beaten this thing. We should have beaten it by now. We could have beaten it by now. And we haven't. I'm not going to insult the people who made those decisions. I'm not going to go down that road. Pierce Morgan saying they're uninformed idiots. But it is frustrating. We could be in a much better spot, but it's not too late. And we're also at a sort of inflection point. If this infrastructure bill passes, I mean, it's not the be-all and end-all. But it would be an example, finally, for the first time in years, that Democrats and Republicans can work together. And while that clearly helps Joe Biden, who campaigned on this, I spent 36 years in the Senate. I can work across the aisle. I don't demonize the other side. It's also good for McConnell and Republicans. They can all go home for the 2022 midterms and say, look, you know, this bridge, this tunnel, this port that's being renovated, uh, this new Amtrak train, I helped get that because I voted for the compromise. It's the way Congress used to work. Now, is there going to be a kumbaya bipartisanship on everything from voting rights to police reform to gun control? Of course not. These are very difficult immigration, very difficult issues with clear partisan divides. But on some things, the parties actually can cooperate. Infrastructure was always number one. So I hope it goes through. And yet, having watched Congress snatch defeat from the jaws of victory many times, I'll remain a bit skeptical. Once again, hope you had a good weekend. Uh, Media Buzz segments are on my Twitter and Facebook. If you'd like to check out, we had a great interview with Ben Shapiro, a provocative interview where I challenged him on a few things. We're back here tomorrow with more BuzzBeat. 